And hello, everybody. Welcome to Tuesday Night's Narrative. It's good to be with you here on a, a very special night. It is special, but also a bit, uh, you know, this is not your typical narrative broadcast. I should warn everybody. This is going to be a bit tense and a bit intense as we um, recover and look at some of the stories we've covered here in the past and take a different view as new information comes to light. And all of that sounds cryptic enough, but I'll explain in a second. Let me say hi first to Kerry Kirkroll, who's joining us tonight. She's a Silicon Valley insider, knows her way around all sorts of uh, interesting deal-making and schemes as they would happen in, in Silicon Valley, but also in Hollywood, which is where some of our story takes place tonight. Thank you for being here, Kerry. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Likewise. Um, so I won't sugarcoat any of this stuff tonight. I really do think that it's important to say to everybody that this is a story about someone we all know, partially a story about someone we all know, and someone who has been in my life and your life a lot. And the reason why I'm covering this in detail is because I have a commitment to you as a viewer of narrative to tell you the truth. That's been my my goal since we started this whole narrative project, and it remains my goal now. And this is going to be difficult and uncomfortable for me in many ways, but I have to do that. That's what this is about. This is really um, about my commitment to you. And if I don't tell you the truth now, you know, when do I tell you the truth in the future? And I, you know, there's, there's a couple of things, you know, Carrie, as a journalist, I've tried really hard not to become the story. There's a sort of a cardinal rule in journalists to stay away from being the story. And yet sometimes you can't avoid it. And in this case, the story is paid out in real time in front of everybody. You know, this is a, a story that spanned over uh, two years. It began in 2019 um, when we started the Jeffrey Epstein investigation. And it continued all the way until now. And it involves, of course, the person I'm talking about is Stephanie Koff. Lincoln's Bible is what you know her as. Uh, that's been her pseudonym on this show for a long time and on Twitter for a long time. And uh, we have long respected that that is her name. We've accepted many reasons. She said that that was the name she wanted to go by. She's recently started going by Stephanie. So I am now uh, calling her Stephanie, um, but she's also publicly a, a viewable online as Stephanie Koff in, in many places. So it's clear who she is. And I'm going to say this, uh, you know, we'll refer to it in both ways, I think, throughout the show, because I've got lots of, uh, you know, I have really fond memories and, and I really have a lot of admiration for uh, the person I thought LB was, is, I don't even know how to say that, but is. And I uh, still have, you know, I still care about LB in a long, in many ways. And I am sharing tonight my view of what happened. She might have different views of what happened. I'll just share what my views are. And I will say that the reason I'm doing this is also because at the core of it is, I think, a very disturbing effort to try and take some of the voices on Twitter, the very few voices that are left on Twitter that are resistance voices, and corral them into some sort of operation and then control them by buying them out. And that to me is very disturbing because we have enough um, media controlled, mass corporation controlled efforts in the world. We don't need to have our few remaining independent voices on Twitter and elsewhere controlled by mass corporations. But we'll get to all of that, you know, as, as we tell the story tonight. And I'm going to start because it all does go back to Jeffrey Epstein. That first time we did the Jeffrey Epstein story and, you know, Carrie, before LB and Greg and other people on the show, I started the podcast first as a live network show here on Twitter. And then it became a podcast. I think it was uh, Independence Day of 2019. We finally launched the podcast and it was, uh, it launched with the secret life of Jeffrey Epstein in that we, we had a amazing luck during that period of time. I mean, I had no intention of the story of the show being so successful. It launched at number one because there were so many breaking elements that we were uncovering just because our timing was as good as it was. And so, 
you know, it became an instant hit and it certainly put narrative on the map, but it also brought a lot of attention from people because we were covering everything from the fact that he was involved in a Ponzi scheme to the fact that he was an Israeli agent to the fact that he, you know, blackmailed politicians, all those elements, which we now sort of accept as true about Jeffrey Epstein first emerged here on narrative when we did that story. It caught a lot of attention and it certainly caught the eye of, you know, of certainly um, foreign intelligence services and and other people who thought maybe this wasn't the nicest thing to to be sharing with the world. But, you know, we <laughs> did it anyhow. And uh, let me start by playing a little clip of that. This is when we discovered that he was involved in a Ponzi scheme and uh, we shared that with our audience. It will also show you how much I've aged in just two years, how stressful this job <laughs> is. So um, here's Tracy and I from that first episode. It's a good look back. Anyhow, it's, it's kind of nice to look back a little bit. Here is, uh, here's us talking about the Ponzi scheme and, and Stephen Hoffenberg. Before Bernie Madoff, these guys were the Ponzi kings. They were the first people to really try daring an incredible crime that ultimately $450 million of it went at missing, least, at, at least. least. Today, it's valued probably at a billion dollars. But if you want to know where Epstein got his cash, a good place to look at is right here because it towers financial $450 million went missing. They played the stock prices of all these companies uh, attempting to buy Pan Am at one point. They were, you know, they were ballsy to say the least. And, and there somehow. Insider trading yeah. going on. I mean, they were just, they, you name it, committing a, a fraud. They were doing it. So. They were. And Hoffenberg going to jail for 18 years. And, you know, when he came out, appears much more repentant. I spoke to him at length today on the phone, and he has an interesting story to tell. He certainly says that Epstein has the money and that Epstein's assets are in that money, are made up of that money. And he points particularly to the island and, and elsewhere. He thinks those can all be derived directly from the losses of you know, two, 200, maybe 200,000 people. I think it was, there's yeah. an astonishing number of people that were victims I, of this, of this crime. And I it's, did a lot of research today. I know you spoke to him for like an hour yeah. and he's a very interesting guy. Sure. That's how it looked back then, Carrie. Um, <laughs> but did you know the, it was interesting. Hoffenberg turned out to be a really good source for us. Stephen Hoffenberg is the guy who went to jail for 18 years for the crimes that he and Jeffrey Epstein essentially committed together. Although he says he, he didn't, he says it was all Jeffrey Epstein that, that did it, but he did serve time and he became a very good source as we started looking to who Jeffrey Epstein really is. Now you're familiar with some of the story, right, Carrie? I mean, you certainly know the Epstein framework and how he impacted as well Silicon Valley. Yeah, I know some of the framework. Um, I think there are people that see from all different perspectives. Um, victims are... a a group that certainly see it from an extremely different perspective. And um, I, I have one lens, but I'm not as familiar with Hoffenberger. I have read about his Ponzi scheme. That's one area I'm not as familiar with, but I do understand that a large portion came from that. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, he's an interesting guy. You meet the weirdest people when you cover stories like this, because, you know, how often do you meet a 74-year-old gangster or mobster? He wouldn't like me saying mm -hmm. that about him, but, you know, they're, you know, they're interesting people. They're... Um, full characters. They look like they've walked off a TV movie. They have that kind of larger than life presence. They're surrounded by interesting people and they've lived the life where they can, you know, call these kind of shots in places that are, you know, you can't dream of doing those kinds of things these days, like trying to buy Pan Am or, you know, whatever it is that we're trying to milk money. But the, the truth of it is that Epstein was not a law abiding person for the most part of it. You know, we know him for the abuse of underage women and girls, but the, the truth of it is 
is real crimes were money crimes. They were financial crimes. He claimed to be a financial investor for many, many people. He's bottom line, by the way. You could only get into his financial firm if you had a net value of a billion dollars. So that's pretty high mm-hmm. up. So yeah. if, you had, if you had 750 million, you wouldn't make it. But if you had a billion, you'd be allowed in. And yet he didn't have any real financial offices. Like he didn't have the typical you know, people sitting analysts at desks and, and doing the work that you'd normally expect. So it was interesting that he, uh, he could successfully convince everyone that he was a financial analyst and got major clients, including you know, some of the biggest clients in the world. Some of them were dictators. Some of them were rulers of other countries. And uh, he did very well for them, mostly because we believe he kind of did these financial crimes. Like in Towers Financial, where Hoffenberg ran his Ponzi scheme, they had $450 million, you know, pour in there. They do all these different kinds of money and financial services for people, some small amounts and some bigger amounts. But at the end of the day, you know, $450 million went missing, 200,000 different victims of that crime, and Epstein got away with a lot of that. So that's, you know, that's one way to look at this story is that Jeffrey Epstein is a financial criminal. The next thing we discovered is that he was also blackmailing people. So let's take a look at that clip. One thing that we do know is there's a lot of blackmailable material that was taken during those parties, including sex acts by famous or well, better well-known people with some of these victims. Um, it's unclear whether we're going to see them, but this this coming soon, I think this the Second Circuit is going to be releasing at least 2,000 documents or could be there about, uh, which could be very embarrassing to a lot of people. So, you know, you wonder not so much about the money as much as there's blackmail. Why does he need the blackmail? He needs the blackmail to cover himself for all the criminality um, that he's already doing. And uh, he's got a lot of people probably very worried a lot of people who over a long period of time have said that this guy's untouchable and he must have felt untouchable in much the same way that Donald Trump sort of, you know, when he said, I can go out into the center of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and no one will do anything. This is the kind of invincibility that um, Epstein, maybe not so much today, but up until this week must have had in terms of his ability to do everything he was doing with impunity, you know, um, and because he had that backup, he had all those documents with famous people and, and pictures and elsewhere. Um, that, and those people are very nervous today because that stuff's coming out and there's no way to keep it, no way to keep a lid on it, I don't think. Well, actually, there's a late way to keep a lid on it because none of it has actually come out, um, amazingly enough. But, you know, the blackmail was a big piece um, and it is how he was able to get away with so much. And I know his interactions with people in Silicon Valley, the allegations are that there was a lot of blackmailing going on over there. Are you aware of any of that or did that come across to any of your work as you've been researching any of that? I think there's three quick points that I would make. Mm. The first is that there's certainly people to be careful of and those that undermine real victims of Mm. Jeffrey Epstein that seem to try to plant false information, whether those are photos and videos, and then they later undermine those victims. So I think, number one, it's important to point that out because there is real material, but there's also you know Mm. material that these poor girls and women, you know, just have to sift through who are their friends and enemies. And it's important to not amplify those voices that are trying to undermine them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first point. The second point is in terms of the blackmail and being mobbed up, in addition to Hoffenberger, I would point out Scott Rothstein, who is a mobbed up guy from <laughs> the Miami and Palm Beach area who was aligned with Roger Stone and created a database called QTask, which Jeffrey Epstein was part of. And Scott Rothstein uh, 
I believe, owned some of the planes that he flew and where these uh, situations occurred. So it's important to point that out, that Roger Stone is aligned with these mobsters and was on the back end of that and aware of that for a very long time. So Yeah, I think you're right there. Let me add about the blackmail that, you know, there's a reason we don't know who the victims of the blackmail were. It sounds weird because they're actually the accused uh, rapists, a lot of them. Um, the victims of the blackmail, we sort of know about Prince Andrew, but we don't know many other of the names or the big names involved. We suspect that they include former presidents and we suspect that they include other big name officials. But it's amazing to me that still to this day, that is unknown. We just do not know. There are apparently eight so-called Johns that were under sealed indictment in the Ghislaine Maxwell case that should be coming out now. And and we don't have them yet. And I don't know why we don't have them yet, but it certainly is an indication that even until today, and it's relevant to what we're talking about today, that there is still an enormous control over the what is being reported, who's reporting it, and what is being allowed out about the Epstein case and about all these other kind of high profile cases involving foreign intelligence officials in and uh, in the United States. Yeah. And to the third point, to answer your question directly, mm-hmm. I am aware of Silicon Valley people mm-hmm. that blackmail others sexually. And I think I can say definitively that I believe that that's true. If someone wants to sue me, uh, discovery will be quite interesting. But I do believe that they attempt to sexually blackmail people, particularly people who are potential future presidents. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's often, it's a good target. It's often a reason they might even become president in a weird way because they have the blackmail material. That's how they get pushed into those offices because, you know, people want to control these individuals and they don't want to have, give them free reign. And I think we've seen many examples of, of world leaders, um, especially in this country where they have been potentially blackmailed to, to do the certain, um, you know, to pass legislation, to act in a certain way, to change policy, you name it. There's all that kind of stuff. So then we discovered carbon. Now, carbon's an interesting thing. Carbon is a company that basically came out of 8200, uh, which is the Israeli uh, military intelligence director. They, they do great, interesting technologies. Most of it, you know, that infringe on other people's <laughs> privacies, but they, but they do quite a good job of that. You know, th- they created this company called Carbon. It was destined for the United States. And inside, you know, 911 centers across the country, they wanted to install the software and have in fact done it in many places where Carbon would allow them, the 911 centers, to turn on your phone wherever you were in an emergency and see what's going on so they can help you in an emergency. That's the theory of it. But of course, maybe they can turn on the phone all the time. Who knows? And maybe they can spy on you all the time. That's the, uh, mm-hmm. that's a suspicion. And it's a pretty good suspicion, I suspect. So it was kind of surprising to find, you know, not only was Jeffrey Epstein an investor there, he was an investor alongside Ehud Barak, who was the former prime minister of Israel. And also Peter Thiel, which just was like, well, what's up? An odd group of people. The rest of the crowd in that little grouping um, was were all from 8200. Like the CEO of the company and the two deputies were all 8200 people, like in military intelligence folk, who uh, one of them had worked for the prime minister um, for Benjamin Netanyahu. So it's an interesting place to find all these different players investing. I think Victor Vexelberg was there as well. Like a strange group of people all investing in a company that was supposedly helping you, citizens of America, um, in emergency <laughs> situations. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> with a direct link to, to 911. So, um, oh, I was just going to say that it uh, sounds remarkably like Reed Hoffman trying to invest in the crisis hotline 
which would include people calling in for sexual assault. Thank right. you for your help. Right, right, exactly. There's a lot of that going on. Um, so yeah. I'm going to show you a clip from, this is like the third episode, I think. We talked a little bit about carbon. And then there's one more clip afterwards, and then I'm going to stop playing them because um, you'll get the point. But uh, this is uh, us talking about uh, how carbon was connected to um, these other players. For one thing, we know that Jeffrey Epstein, potentially an Israeli agent, is invested in it. Ahud Barak, who's a very, very decent guy and potentially the future prime minister of Israel, is invested in it. But look at the three people that are actually the founders and developers of this um, of this product. And we remind you that Psy Group was created by a guy named Joel Zamel, who came from Israeli intelligence. All three of these come from either Israeli military backgrounds or Israeli intelligence backgrounds. Alex Dizinger is a cybersecurity expert who worked for the Israeli prime minister. Amir Elikai is a former Israeli intelligence officer, an elite Israeli intelligence officer, I should add. And Lita Leshem is not only still currently an Israeli defense force captain, still a reserve captain, is also uh, formerly of Black Cube. And Black Cube is a very controversial company. When you heard Cambridge Analytica mentioned there in that earlier clip, um, Tracy, that you shared with us from the Channel 4 documentary, the Israeli group that they were working with, Black Cube. Black Cube. Um, I know. So... I'm not going to take everybody's assurances anymore, having seen what Cambridge Analytica did and and knowing that Psy Group and Zamo were involved in the elections for a whole year supporting Donald Trump. I am not that comfortable that this kind of organization, the Carbine, is now using and selling the system into the United States. There's already two, I think, counties that have started using it into the United States. And it looks to me like that spread will increase now that these people are involved. And these people are Peter Thiel, the, uh, you know, talk about a, a, a not a champion of privacy. <laughs> Peter Thiel is the, is the founder of Palantir. He's been accused of a lot of that same, same kind of privacy concerns and the, and the founder of Facebook, same kind of privacy concerns, along with the government of Israel are now all supporting this particular venture financially. I, you know, pre 19, pre 2016, I would have said, great. These, you know, Israelis are the best at this. They're the best in the field. Post 2016, I'm a little bit skeptical that uh, we should be just accepting any software or or any services from the intelligence-associated uh, community in Israel because of what they did in 2016. Which I still think of is true today. You know, first, I was born in Israel, and I, I'm sure people know that, but I just want to make sure that I, that I am the furthest thing away from being anti-Israel or anti-Zionist or anything like that. I would not even be in existence if it weren't for Israel because my parents immigrated to Israel from two different countries. They met there. They would never have met otherwise. That's where I, you know, I spent the first four years of my life. I, I love Israel and I love the people of Israel. And I think that there's a tremendous amount of great things that come out of Israel. I very strongly disagree with some of the policies of the Israeli government in the last 20 years. And, and I think I'm not alone. I mean, I think we've yeah. had in Israel a religious right government that's Far, 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 far to the right. It's very similar to what they landed up giving us here in the United States. And so you've got a, you know, you've got a situation where moderate people can't really survive in an environment when they're, you know, being forced to do things that are pretty extreme or being confronted by extremities every day. And that's what we landed up with when we got Bibi Netanyahu. So when I criticize mm-hmm. Israel, I'm not criticizing Israel as a notion or anything. I love Israel. I really, really love Israel. And I, it breaks my heart, to be honest, every time I have to report on this because it's such an important country to me and it's such an important country to the world that what they've done to it is devastating to me. And so yes. I'm an Israeli citizen. 
because I was born there, I'm allowed to express my opinions politically, which is why, you know, the events of the last few weeks have been so difficult because essentially it feels to me like there are elements of the Israeli government or Israeli intelligence services that are coming after me for expressing my point of view um, or doing my job reporting. And that is just very difficult to handle because I'm supposed to be the citizen of, you know, I'm not, I'm not your enemy. I really am not. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to deal with. But we'll get there. We'll get there in a bit. We'll talk about all of that. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I also have a Jewish Israeli family and I studied at American Jewish University for six months and I love Israel. I've been there. And I think it's so important what you said, because people are masked by this talk, you know, about Nazism and all these other things that Netanyahu has been cultivating. Mm -hmm. So it's important that people can acknowledge and there are many, many Israeli people that do not agree with him oh, and yeah. young people and progressive people that, that don't agree with him. So, you know, they're having their Trump moment. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. There's a lot. I mean, in fact, I argue the majority of people probably in the country, especially younger people are, have had a very difficult time under Netanyahu. And, uh, you know, it's probably a little bit better now, but still not entirely. So, you know, in terms of the restrictions they have to face in life, they've had some really extreme things in the last few years. They've had these um, restrictions on their movements for coronavirus, where they couldn't even move a uh, hundred meters outside of their home, their phones would trigger and immediately if they walked a hundred meters out of their home and they would uh, get fined for things like that. I mean, we, we think of Israel as being a very, you know, modern democracy and it isn't really anymore. It's become a very, you know, at least a police state in some ways, especially around coronavirus. And mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting to see that, you know, so they're suffering too in many ways because that's unreasonable. In, and of course, we've now yeah. found out all those restrictions yeah. weren't necessary at all. You know, so I, uh, if anyone's going to accuse me of being anti-Semitic or anti-Zionism, have your way, but I'm not, you know, that's a, yeah. that's not true. Um, and I'm just going to leave it at that. But we did find out finally that he was an Israeli spy. And this is how we got it. This is a big exclusive that narrative landed up breaking and you haven't heard of probably if you're new to narrative or you won't see it anywhere else because no one else covers this stuff. But we had two different sources. Halfordberg told me that Epstein had worked for the Israelis. And then Ari ben Menashe told me that he worked for the Israelis. Now, Ari ben Menashe was the head of the military intelligence directorate, or at least a senior executive there at the time that Jeffrey Epstein would have worked there, but also at the time of Maxwell during Iran-Contra. In fact, he was the guy running yeah. Iran-Contra. So he really knows his way around what, you know, around that world. Mm -hmm. He was Maxwell's boss, if you will. He also confirmed that it was in fact that he worked for the Israelis. Now it turns out that the way I found this out and the way I got in touch with Ari ben Menashe is because of LB. LB calls me up one day and says, you know, you should go to Montreal and talk to Ari ben Menashe because he's there. I was like, oh yeah, I didn't realize he was there. I'm in Toronto. I can get to Montreal. No problem. And I started contacting him. I never really questioned like why I was getting this information. And later on, I found out it was, uh, at least she said it was, you know, she'd heard from Craig Unger that he was in, in Montreal, but it was unusual for me to find out from him. I didn't know idea he was here in, in Canada, but I, I called him up and it was kind of persistent. I wanted to talk to him. I thought it'd be an interesting conversation to talk to him. And then, you know, and in this show, we finally did get to talk to him. So I went up there. It was terrifying, to be honest. He's a, you know, clearly one of um, <laughs> he's a real big time spy. You know, he's a, I don't think he'd have any difficulty hurting anybody if you wanted to. So I, <laughs> I, you know, I tried it a little carefully, but we did find out a lot of interesting information. And because 
I'd uh, known a lot about Hoffenberg already. I was able to get some stuff that I don't think other people had gotten. So I'm going to play you this clip. This is a bit long. I'm not going to play the whole thing, but it gives you at least the first section. Two things to listen out for. One is we find out about the lost years. You know, everyone had assumed that Ghislaine Maxwell had met Jeffrey Epstein in 1991 when she arrived in the United States. And that's just the story. That's the story they told everyone. It wasn't true. They actually met, you know, many, many years later, at least a decade earlier, when they first started dating during the Iran-Contra scandal. And that's when Ariban Menashe and Maxwell, his father, were engaged in this incredible amount of arms trading, which is going on around the world, which involved Israel, the United States, through the CIA, Contras, the Saudis, the British, you name it. There's a whole bunch of things. Jeffrey Epstein, mm-hmm. at the same time, was buying arms and selling arms to the Saudis via the British. And so... This is an interview. It's all audio, I'm afraid. I don't have any video. He wouldn't go on video. But it is interesting to hear his take on how he met Jeffrey Epstein and that they became agents after all. So what happened was that Maxwell introduced him to us and he wanted, he wanted us to accept him as part of our group. I'm not denying that we were, at the time, that we were group, that it was Nick Davies, there was Maxwell, it was myself and our team from Israel. Mm-hmm. We were doing what we were doing. September the 22nd, Iraqi planes attacked Merabad airport. Outside. Selling arms via There was a project. It wasn't selling arms. Right. It was transferring arms to Iran. So we're talking about Iran-Contra, basically. Yeah. We're talking about that same arms deal as yeah. Iran-Contra. Israel was very concerned about the Iraqis uh, taking over southern Iran. So Maxwell introduces you. He says, yeah. here's this young guy. Yeah. And did he go by the name Jeffrey Epstein or did he go by a different name? Jeff Okay. So he had a different passport that he was traveling yeah, in and out that's of. That's right. Uh, yeah, but that's came later. Okay. So he says to you, here's this guy, Jeffrey Epstein, who I know from, just know from around. And your Israeli bosses have approved. Oh, okay. Already approved. So it came down from up above. So what did he do? Can you say what he did for you? Like what kind of work did you guys do together? No, no. Didn't do oh, so you just you met him and that was it? I met him a few times in Maxwell's office. That was it. And did he do any arms deals for anybody else that you were aware of? Not like, that I know. Because there was, the, you know, there's the, uh, I guess it was an I, he didn't, he, he wasn't very competent. He didn't yeah. seem to be a competent guy. He didn't seem to be. But he was a good-looking guy. And uh, Miss Maxwell. Shalane, yeah. Fell, fell for him. Early that early, nineteen eighties. How old was she? She was, uh, she was young. Yeah. But most of the reporting about her and him only started in nineteen ninety one when they when they got to the United States. Uh, yeah, I realized that, but they were already they were already dating. So he was part of dating, whatever. So they were part of the, he was part of the family business. Uh, yeah, and Maxwell sort of. Uh, started liking him and my theory is that Maxwell by because uh, Maxwell felt that this guy is calling for his daughter right and he felt uh, he felt like he could bless him with some work and help yeah, him out, and like it felt paternal, paternal for him. Um, was she part of the business too? Was she involved in what you were doing over there? No, no. no. But later on, yeah, she got involved 
with Israeli intelligence together with him. Right. But not in this arms dealing, Iran known business. Would you say she was uh, an, an agent as well? Was she uh, yes, someone yes. working for oh, Israeli oh, intelligence? Oh, definitely. Military intelligence as well? Yes. yes. And. Um, To, when, when that happens, because uh, I have no idea how that world works, so I'm learning a little it's bit. It's happened by accident. Do, do, do you get orders and you have to do certain things, no, or is no, it more like... No, 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 we get projects with kids. What really happened, my take on it and the later thing, is that these guys were seen as agents. Mm-hmm. They weren't co- really competent to do very much. <laughs> uh, and so um, they found a niche for themselves, blackmailing mm-hmm. American and other uh, political figures. So it was a bit of a scoop. That was uh, unknown to most people at the time, or at least not confirmed by anyone. You know, yeah. Ari Bermanashi gave us some stuff there that was new. So first of all, excellent work. Like I, I was not aware of that episode, and that's incredible work. Second, are you familiar with the background of Southern Air Transport and Les Wexner? I am, yeah. and uh, you can fill people in on that because that's the work that he did, that Epstein did with the CIA, right? And basically, you're... yeah. I mean, you probably can fill in more than yeah, I can yeah. after having talked to that man. But um, I just know from publicly available information that Southern Air Transport was one of the early Air America CIA planes, and it was based in Miami, and then it moved to Columbus, Ohio, and Les Wexner got it and yeah. was shipping L brands with it. Yeah, right. So they, yeah, and uh, it was, was Epstein's. Uh, Epstein ran it, or Epstein owned it. I can't remember what he did, but he did do a little bit of a. Uh, Was he, did he own it? Was that a handed over to him? I can't remember. I don't know if it was handed over. Yeah. But that was what they used to do a lot of shipping around. And, you know, this is where, as I'll be always points out, there's a, uh, an overlap between intelligence and the mob. And sometimes the intelligence services can do some things that look like organized crimes or work with organized criminals. And sometimes, not necessarily from this country, but from every country, that happens yes. a fair amount of time. Why do you think she wanted you to connect with him? She wanted me to get that interview, I think. And she wanted me to get that interview out because the one thing she was concerned about the most about me not getting it, not getting one clip on the air was um, a clip about Bill Clinton. Arbin Menashe had said something about Bill Clinton and uh, being the reason Epstein was set up, that there was concern around Bill Clinton uh, being too pro-Palestinian and therefore at the end of that whole thing, that's one thing she wanted taken out. But what happens next is really what I think it was all about. I get this interview, I come back, and she presents this thing to me. She says, this guy named John Vane, who is a, a big-time investment person and also a Democratic fundraiser, she said, was offering to uh, support our efforts in uncovering more of this if we could get together with a big entity like a CNN or like a, a CBS and where we could do the story with them. He would bring in this extra... Um, resources to back up our story and our reporting. And lo and behold, uh, CNN had called her, just called her recently and said that they were interested in working on the story. And would I talk to them? And I was like, yeah, of course I'll talk to CNN if they want to do the story. No problem. Uh, I go, I share as much as I can. I even set up an interview with Hoffenberg and a bunch of other things. And we are about to sign a deal. They even like they paid us for a couple of days. We we're meant to pay us for a couple of days. And we we're about to sign a deal when just at the last minute, the whole thing gets um, pulled by probably, you know, the senior executives there. 
And which is oh, weird because they because <laughs> because they vetted the story and they knew it was right. So why 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 is it now dead? And why where's our resources and where's the money and where's everything you said you would get? And what are we meant to do with the story that I'm now holding on to and I can't run? So in terms of like catch and killing things, yeah. um, you know, it's interesting that some people spoke out in the Me Too era during you know the Trump administration to Washpo, mm-hmm. who uh at the time, the editor was Marty Baron, and who was Marty Baron partnered with to revolutionize journalism and media? Joy Ito mm. on the Night Foundation. Right, right. So anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you, no, no. I think you're, I think because catch and kill is a is very prominent. It's very much a, a method that people kill stories. They they do exactly mm-hmm. what the, I just did there. They send me out on a story. They get the story. They bring it back, and then they you know they either pay you or they don't, but they find a way to kill the story. Now. In my case, mm-hmm. I happened to have my own platform. So I was like, well, I'm still running it because it's my own platform. So I'm going to do it, which um, annoyed them a lot, by the way. They got really <laughs> upset because, you know, why was I doing it? But on the other hand, they had no rights. Now, I didn't think that much about all of that. And, you know, we, there was a negotiation afterwards and some sort of settlement, which, you know, technically I'm not allowed to speak about, but because these facts are now so different, I actually just am. But I, I'm not, I won't go into the details of the settlement, except to say that that's, it was all coordinated by LB. And that huh. seems like a lot. That seems like a lot to me. I, I honestly, I'll say, I'll say in retrospect, and at the time I didn't think it was a lot, but in retrospect, I think, you know, she's not a, a journalist per se. She's a researcher of the mob. And so she's, she's on Twitter and came very, very good at that. But is she, you know, is, does she have this range of contacts to have all these things unfold in front of her like this? It seemed like that's a lot. I don't, have those, those range of contacts. And I've been in the business for 30 years. I don't have access to the CNN journalists to where Ari Ben Manashi is or to where, um, right. you know, to where the, all these intelligence services are suddenly offering their help to help me f- support a story. That just doesn't, it just doesn't happen to me. I mean, mm-hmm. it seemed like a lot of really good luck that we were getting it together, but in retrospect, I feel like, boy, that's a series of events that you have to really wonder how she got together. I mean, it's possible that she got it all together, but yeah. And, yeah. and the other thing is, um, I think people should recognize what you're doing right now and what have you have been doing, which is something that is a lost art in the United States right now, which is obtaining new information, getting new data and reevaluating your opinion based on yeah. the data. Like we're right. so in the fighting with each other mode that no one is actually seeking or obtaining new data and updating their you know, I think that's so true. I mean, I really am embarrassed that I didn't pick this up at the time. And I'm embarrassed that I, I'm staring in front of this audience tonight because I'd be ashamed that, you know, that I allowed these untruths to come in the air here because I feel very responsible for the show. And I don't want, sorry. It's okay. I feel very responsible for what we put out on a narrative. And I don't want people to be hoodwinked by people coming on the show, pretending to be other people or, or not being truthful and then also creating these situations which are completely fraudulent in some ways because, you know, who knows what the intention of all of this was, but it could have been, it could have been that they just didn't want the American public to know this really important fact about Jeffrey Epstein. And that is really crucial to the American public to know this because, in fact, not only was Israel involved in Jeffrey Epstein, they were also involved in various other things, including the election in 2016. And people don't know that because they've chosen not to allow that out. And so that's that's the problem with uh, these kind of events. They They might seem like they're just ops for people and whatever, but, you know, they're changing history. 
They change the way people perceive history and they change our ability to respond to events. You know, we still, for a large extent, think of the United States as being attacked by Russia in 2016, which is true. We were. Mm -hmm. But there's also several other countries that were involved and all of them continue to assault the United States on a daily basis because in our beliefs and our need to, our desire to be democratic. And so they're constantly attacking us. And we don't know that they're attacking us because we are being told by the media that it's always just, firstly, domestic politics. Like everything that Mm -hmm. goes on in the United States is always blamed on just the GOP and the Dems are fighting with each other about all these things and these crazy right-wingers and crazy left-wingers. But really a lot of that is inspired and instigated by foreign operatives who are, Mm -hmm. you know, who are igniting these events. And then also they have control of a lot of the media. So they're able to amplify what we're hearing a lot of the time. So if you want the truth, you can't get it on TV. You get nothing. And so, you know, these are not just ops. And for those people who just do these things, they think, oh, I'm just doing an op. No, you're doing an op that is actually going to change the way people perceive what's going on in the world and could change the way history unfolds and the future of America. So it's decidedly, I think, you know, an American to do these kinds of things to America. But I, you know, people do what they need to do for whatever reasons they feel they need to do them. That's... Yeah. And it's understandable that um, the Democratic Party and people that are left would want to focus on the Russian aspect to get through this election because it was such a large piece and such a major influence. But then once we've gotten past that critical point and things are still strange in ways that it are not clear to the American public, then it starts time to peel the other layers, you know, to otherwise we won't ever go back to having normal debates. No, we can't. In this situation where we've got these, this instigation happening from both sides and this polarization happening, no one's listening to each other. We're just going to keep yelling at each other. And all of that, I guarantee you, is controlled by external forces who are pushing storylines on Fox News and OAN and you name it. They're creating this world or Joe Rogan. I mean, these are all situations where you've got people amplifying dissent and amplifying polarized opinions, it will lead ultimately to war. I mean, there's just, you keep doing that, keep doing that, you get a civil war. This is not where America's really at right now. America's not in the space that they're putting us in because of this propaganda that we keep getting. And these events, these ops, these different things that people do and CNN's failure as a news network, you know, is really important. And it's interesting that CNN is the network that did this catch and kill. And it's interesting that in fact, they are the same network that is owned by Time Warner right now, but it's just being transferred over to Discovery, just to Warner Media. And there are a lot of, you know, for one thing, important to note that the main shareholder of Time Warner, uh, as an individual shareholder, there's many others, but there's an individual shareholder, is Aviv Nevo. He's an Israeli guy, born in Romania, but Israeli guy who, I, you know, by all intents and purposes, looks like he's an operative for Israeli intelligence services or Israel in some ways. It doesn't, it's not obvious, but, uh, you know, how did he, he disappeared for a few years and then came back, uh, as a 5% owner. Suddenly he was not really that wealthy and suddenly became a 5% over one of the biggest media companies in the world. Interesting take. He makes friends with all these rich people and all these influential people as a big mover and shaker. And, um, not only did he, yeah. uh, I just want to point out two things. So not only does he have influence there at CNN, he also worked at the Weinstein company. And it is important because I, you know, I, again, I, I, I don't like talking about people. I know this well, but LB not only had the contacts at CNN, but it also previously worked for the Weinstein company. So there's a, you know, it's not just that she's, um, she did these events. It's just, she did these events with all the 
the necessary contacts and previous history to make these events happen. And that to me is, uh, is challenging as well, because it's certainly, you know, I'm not accusing anyone of doing anything, even though it might sound like it, but it certainly looks to me like um, that I, I was a victim of an operation. I was a victim of someone trying to make me do something and to come across in a certain way and to present the news in a certain way. And, and so was the audience of the show. I mean, I think at the end of the day, this was an attempt to control the news, at least in the United States, and then also get some news out to, to different kind of news to the world, then also control the narrative here. So, you know, that's a, that's a complicated uh, situation to be in with someone that you have on the show on a regular basis and you like. Thank so. you for sharing it. I'm sorry that that happened. Um, in terms of Nevo, I don't know if you've heard of Amplify LA. Um, no. Okay. So that's something maybe to look into. That's the first thing I notice when I see that name besides some other facts. Um, there was a, an, a tech entertainment vehicle in LA called Amplify. I think it raised, I don't know, something like $5 million amongst a few different investors. And the cast of characters in that investment are interesting. It's Nevo, um, Tim Draper, mm. and Mark Burnett, who is the apprentice producer. Mm. And we all know the alignment between Sheldon Adelson and Tim Draper and Trump. Yeah. Well, that still sounds like a big intelligence operation, doesn't it? Because especially yeah. the, because well, Mark Burnett clearly is, as Albia told us on the show through her experience, um, a uh, you know connected to intelligence, the Russian intelligence services, and in many ways. And uh, so that doesn't surprise me. But it's a uh, boy. That sounds like a fun place to, to hang out. Not. I yeah. Mean. So. There's a lot of these, unfortunately. I want to I should step, step back a little bit here because there's another interesting take, which I, I sort of skipped over. But I mentioned John Vane earlier on. He's this very, very wealthy guy uh, who ran a, a company that does a lot of research for corporations about their brands. He's a Hillary Clinton supporter and was an official delegate for Hillary Clinton. But before he was that, he was also Michael Ovitz's like, number two guy, the COO at the very, very famed artist agency, which is a huge agency in, at a time in Hollywood. And there's a, an interesting part of the story because when, when the Ovitz agency, the artist agency sort of started falling apart and it did in spectacular fashion, it went from being one of the biggest players in, in North America to being worth just $12 million when Ovitz got paid a final payout for it. It was interesting that it was sold to a guy named Quatinets, I don't know how you say that, but Quatinets, and I'll just read this from the article. This is from Vanity Fair. Um, had his bid um, to Overt and asked if he could take it over the phone. Overt asked if he could take it over the phone. Quatinets insisted that he do it in person, and he sent over the former Goldman Sachs banker and current uh, Steve Bannon. So, he, so Steve Bannon is the guy who goes over to um, Overt and actually does the offer one on one. And that morning, Bannon sat in Ovitz's office and listened for an hour as Ovitz went on and on about the tremendous synergies AMG offered any acquirer. Finally, it came time for Bannon to unveil the bid. Ovitz was looking at uh, for a number in the neighborhood of $35 million to $40 million. The firm, Bannon said, was offering $5 million and none of it up front. Ovitz won't admit it, but the sense of humiliation must have been crushing. Uh, here was the most powerful man in Hollywood being dealt uh, a low bold figure by a set of music weenies, he called them. For a moment, Ovitz said nothing. Finally, he told Bannon, if I didn't know you personally, I'd throw you out of the room. So Bannon is somehow involved in this whole thing, which is also kind of interesting because, I mean, he does have a Hollywood past, which I think people forget about. Uh, mm-hmm. But the fact that he's involved in this thing with John uh, Vane and, uh, and Ovitz is interesting. And it's also interesting that, you know, LB is a script writer. She's acknowledged that she uh, once uh, worked on a script or received a script from Bannon as well. 
And I think those kinds of things, which I've at the time have let happen, you know, they just say pass on the show and you find out all these little nuggets of someone. But when you look back at in the fullness of time at all this thing and you see here's someone who was involved in criticizing Steve Bannon on a regular basis on the show. I mean, she's mm-hmm. a very big critic of Steve Bannon. And uh, I don't think she should give him the time of day. Uh, she wouldn't let us put him on the air or anything like that. She would have been very upset about that. So, you know, here's someone who, who's that, but also knows John Vane, who worked at the artist company and, and must have known Steve Bannon because he was involved in that deal. And then he also knows Steve Bannon because she received a script from him. Again, I'm asking questions that are just like, I do we really know who LB is if we're looking at a, at a situation where she's got all these connections and she's got all these people. And then John Vane's still in her life now to help her send me on a trip to go get Ari Ben Menashe's interview. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's becomes very tricky to put all this together and believe that, that it's just normal business for an average person on Twitter. That's what we're seeing. And, you know, yeah, yeah, that's just very tough to add all those things together and see that that is just a real person. So maybe yeah. she's a constructed person. Maybe she's been put together by some sort of operation. And certainly the fact that she doesn't use her real name, even to this day, even though she can, I don't really know. I don't really understand why, because I think it is important for people to say who they are when they're, when they're appearing in public. Yeah, there's a simple thing that I've been reminded of lately that I know is extremely simple, but the, you know, watch what they do, not what they say. And mm-hmm. I don't know her and I'm not making a judgment on that per se, but there's a lot of people like that. Um, you know, Ariana Huffington is another, mm-hmm. she runs mm-hmm. a very democratic liberal thing at HuffPo. And at the end of the day, she was raised up by John Brockman in the mm-hmm. media which some of the, you know, Silicon Valley people know very well. And I wish they would, you know, talk to us and you. Uh, But anyway, Mm. she was raised up by John Brockman through the Silicon Valley crowd. Um, She was also plucked up by Newt Gingrich, Mm -hmm. who would love to build a moon colony. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) right. Exactly. (laughs) You know, I don't know how to do that any better. (laughs) It's... It's good that you have a sense of humor about these things. I'm not sure I'm there yet, but I, um, there is more because I'm just going to, I don't know what's the time here, but I just want to say one thing that you talk about, watch what they do and watch what they say. So about two years ago, I told LB about this idea I had of getting all these, these unique voices that we have on Twitter, putting together on, on one TV network and putting it out as a TV network. And she thought it was a great idea. She even mentioned it to Alison Gill over at the Mullis She Wrote Network. And we actually landed up having an agreement together that I was going to do the video network and she was going to do the audio network. And and the audio network was already existing because podcasts for audio were pretty much, it's easier to do those things. Video was going to take a longer to launch a whole TV network. But we went away and did all those things. And I was part of her network for the last year or so. LB has been in the background, you know, being a, uh, again, a very helpful resource for AG and, and me in different ways. But I guess about six months ago, I noticed that, you know, LB had left me out of the podcast series she had, which is called, uh, World Beneath had been a very similar concept as the one I had pitched with to her and actually had discussed with her. Uh, mine was called crime of the century, but it involved essentially, essentially a look back at the last century of crimes and, uh, the way intelligence and the mob met. And I, you know, it was clear to me that she'd either was inspired by my idea or borrowed my idea when she did her, her podcast. And I didn't feel like I didn't, I don't, I, for me, it was not that urgent or important to have a fight over who's creative that was. And I you know, sure she should have a vehicle of her own and do her thing. 
but I was surprised that even though everyone else I knew was on the podcast, that I never got it mentioned even once. And it was interesting that I was that even when she was talking about how I introduced, she'd met some people through me on the show, but when she was talking to them about how she met them on the show, she would make up some excuse about it being something else. Like it wasn't about me. And then subsequently I've noticed that in the last year and a half, or at least now when I look back at her Twitter timeline, all my tweets have disappeared off her timeline. Like it's almost like she's erased me off her timeline. Same with Greg. Like I can't really find my retweets on those things. And it's, a, it's weird that that's there because why would they, why would they take my out of there? So. And that's not uh, recent. It's over time. Oh no, I think it's recently they might've, I know she was tweeting me before, had retweeted me, but it's only like one tweet in the last two years that's still up there, which I thought was, I mean, we're on the same show. So she would always retweet the show. That's not even there. Um, so that to me is like a unusual behavior. And then I saw, is she, is she trying to erase me from the story or what? I don't know. But then the audio podcast company that I, the network we're on MSW um, told me a few weeks ago that I uh, couldn't really use them anymore because they were going to do, use a different ad agency and I'd have to, I'd have to oh. find my own ad agency. And then yesterday or two days ago, I found out that they'd actually transferred their entire library, including my show without my, any permission to this entity in California that was uh, an accounting firm. I can't remember, Shapiro, something, something. It goes, it's one of these typical accounting firm names. So I look it up online and it's not just an accounting firm called Shapiro, whatever, whatever. It's actually on the, on the Warner Brothers lot. It's on Warner's lot. And if anyone knows anything about <laughs> LA, fun. when you're on Warner's lot, you're basically doing their business for, maybe they've got, they're independent there, but they basically are helping probably actors, whatever, get their payment from, from Warners or whatever. It's not like there's a lot of independent businesses on these lots. They don't, they don't let you hire, a, right. you know, as part of it. And it, it may be that they are completely independent. Who knows? But it seems striking to me <laughs> that, you know, yeah. this is the Warner lot because, because as I just mentioned, Avi uh, never there owns 5% of the Warner company and, and CNN, the same company that uh, caught and killed my story are a sister company of the Warner Brothers. In fact, they're owned by Warner Media. And so there's a lot of stuff that just starting to correlate to me and say, wow, this is not looking right. There's something going on here. What are they going to do with all these podcasters that they've hired, that, that they've got contract for MSW Media? Are they going to sell them to these Israeli intelligence type folks who might be operating in Warner Brothers? And it might be that that's what they're trying to do. It could be that they're trying to collect all these voices, these well-known voices, and that they're going to try and sell them to a company that can control them. Because that's what has been done in other parts of the world before. And that is my fear. And that is what I, you know, that's why I'm, this is not a show I wanted to do at all. Um, and it's a show that I feel I, just, I, I had to do. So I'm, you know, strudging through it. But it is important to me that people understand that there could be an organized attempt to, to take all these Twitter voices, these great podcasters that, you know, have, have stood up on their own, and then to be sold off potentially. And it'll be interesting to see if that is something that happens to Warner. It's some big deal. And, you know, maybe they'll start their own uh, narrative network like I want to start. Only it'll have different sort of editorial values and controls and, and who knows what else. Yeah. And just um, as a reminder, if people are not aware that Leah Safian's, I don't know if it's her stepsister or her cousin. It's like a very close relative. She's the head of content partnerships at Warner. Oh, so oh, there you go. She's probably involved in this deal. I wouldn't be surprised if she wasn't involved in yeah, this that, deal. That's Maxwell's attorney, um, Leah. Mac oh, so so who's, she, the, who's she? She's Ghislaine Maxwell's Lisa? attorney? Mm -hmm. uh, Leah Safian is the attorney of Maxwell and 
longtime, I guess, BFF. She's the one who staged the in and out photo. That mm. was Leah. Oh, okay. She's also the one that created a shell company for Maxwell to buy a home in New Hampshire to mm. evade, you know, authority. And it's either her like stepsister or first cousin, some close relative is Lisa Safian, who is the head of content partnerships at Warner. Yeah. Sounds like it's right out of this, uh, out of this deal. I was interested the other way, you know, I occasionally get headhunters calling me and recently uh, someone from Time Warner called me and said, do you want to, you know, they wanted to talk to me about the strategic development job for TMZ, which is on the Warner lot. I was like, this is the most out of the blue call. Like it's not even in my area of interest and I'm doing news and I'm doing narrative. Why, why are you suddenly calling me? So I thought that was interesting too. There's, you know, who knows what the reasons or rationale for that are, but you know, my, this has not been an easy time because these are all friends of the show. These are people who love the show. They come on the show. They're our guests on the show and something's happening, I believe. And when you look back at the fullness of this timeline, and as we've discussed, there seems to be a lot of instances where you've got to question how these things happen. How did all these things happen? And this is one of them where you just wonder how I'm the only one, the only podcaster. I don't know how many podcasts they have there that suddenly can't be on their network. I can't still yeah. be available on their network, on their, uh, on their website. They were okay with me putting my face and logo up there. So, they, you know, maybe attract other potential podcasts to the podcast network, but I can't work with them anymore. Even though I had a deal to, you know, to create the video network with them. So I guarantee you will be out there accusing me of all sorts of things in the next few days. And I will be bashed and beaten up by all these many, many much larger accounts than I have, which is also interesting that they have so much followers, but, um, there's nothing I can do about that. All I can do is share the story that I know today with you guys. And, and that's what I've tried to do here. There's actually a ton more. I'm just, I'm going to let the rest sort of be out there. And if, if I need to, I'll bring it on another day, but yeah, yeah, that's, that's, um, uh, so that's, yeah. Thank that's you, Carrie. Something. Thank you for being here. Cause I don't think I could have done that without you. Um, and, uh, people are asking if on the chats, they're asking if it is just one show. Yeah. Just as far as I'm aware, it's, I'm the only show that's uh, been taken off, uh, that's been asked not to be on the network. They have a reason for it. The rationale is that they said that they can't monetize the Twitter audience, but then they couldn't explain why they couldn't monetize the Twitter audience. And they, mm-hmm. they quoted some rules that made no sense at all, like no sense about the way Twitter calculates its audience. So I don't really buy that, nor would they discuss it. And it's got, you know, it's got that I I just left it there. Um, You know, none of this is meant to be in a personal assault on anybody. I really do like LB. I mean, it's kind of weird to say considering all these things, but we have had a very close relationship for the last few years. It's obviously not going to be like that now, but um, I don't understand the processes she's done. And they're all seem pretty obvious to me now. And, and I don't know if that was designed to just hurt me, sideline me, whatever it was. But it's okay. Uh, you know, we will persevere. And it's just unfortunate that uh, I allowed her on the air to say things and to be here and to build a connection with this audience when she wasn't being truthful to everybody here. And, you know, I'll, I'll try to better at that. I don't know how to vet people any better than that. I feel really dumb about being yeah. a victim to this thing because it's like, how can you be, you know, how could you have all this happen to you and you not know? But it's really interesting. Actually, I had an alternative. Uh, slide for the spider web thing, which I said, you know, when you're caught inside the web, you might not be able to see the web. And I think that I was just caught in a web and I could not see it because mm-hmm. you're, you're so stuck in it. So, you know, I'll do better at trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. And I don't think that there was, you know, any falsehoods spoken by LB, but I don't think we necessarily know the full story. And I think we might know the full story now a little bit better. Yes. Maybe just, I might add there that, you know, I've experienced people that reject my 
opinion or friendship or uh, camaraderie for having spoken to certain people. And I understand them because there's a lot of gaslighting and ops that are going on around. And it's hard to decipher that in the current age. But um, I think, you know, when we have an information source, we are open about it and transparent. And I let people know I'm speaking to this person or I'm getting information from this place so that it's transparent and people can make their own choices. They cannot like me, they can disagree, they can debate, but they can make their own choice. And I think what has happened with your situation is very different because, you know, you didn't have all the facts. So you couldn't make the decision for yourself. Yes, that's true. But, you know, I like to tell people that I have all the facts. So it's, uh, <laughs> well, we, yeah, I, thank you very much for saying that. And you're absolutely right. Like, I think that people have to realize we're all sort of caught in a, in a state of being in the middle of an op. I mean, we're all being, yeah. there is psychological warfare being, targeted at every American every second of the day. And we're constantly bombarded by things that only are partially true or, or just, you know, are trying to push us in certain directions. And, and we have to be aware that it's just, that's just reality. That's part of where our lives are right now. Um, and mm-hmm. try to be on them. So on that note, I was going to try to get some chats, but I'm really kind of tired. So I'm going to, uh, <laughs> I just think I just need to, uh, say good night. And, uh, Thank you, Carrie. I really appreciate your time here. And thank you so much for being here today. And there's a lot of people helping me with a lot of this research and a lot of people confirmed a lot of things for me that I really appreciate. I feel a lot more confident about saying the things I did because I had that. And I've tried to not talk about anybody else that is not directly involved in this because I just, you know, I don't want to make this a, a big personal event and I don't want everyone sort of piling in and talking you know, about each other. I think it's very dangerous for this community. And I don't really, really hope that no one does that. You know, there's a few people that need to talk and, and maybe they should talk and, and everybody else uh, to, you know, let the rest of us try to figure that out. Um, but thank you very much. And uh, on that note, thank you to the audience and thanks to you, Carrie, and thank you at home. And I will be back tomorrow night in better shape for tomorrow's narrative. Have a good night, everybody. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.